How do we join with others to achieve and experience more and get in flow as a unified team? This is the question we ask each episode in the Unified Team podcast. Here's your host, Rob McPhillips. Rob, my background relationships. I realized that a great relationship is really a great team. And so it's about being united. So now I work with teams on developing trust, communication, with the end goal of being a unified team. Tony Wormsley, I run the Leaders Advisory, which has been the culmination of a, almost a lifetime in football and a transition into business. I now operate with leaders and teams in dynamic, fast-moving environments who really struggle with ultimately performance. So I consider myself a performance specialist. So it's taking the lessons from sport into any sort of environment where people come together to reach a mutually agreed objective and then find difficulty in how to navigate that. And the more complex the the, the environment, the, the, happier, the happier I am. Yeah, my name's Thomas Korch. I'm a, a football head coach who has had a passion and obsession for football pretty much my whole life. And at the early part of my career, I, I spent 15 years in, in recruitment and latterly two and a half, three years in learning and development. So when I was a frustrated head coach outside of the game, I was actually picking up lots and lots of skills that were going to be transferable to me when I eventually got into the, the, the full-time professional sport arena. In terms of culture development, personality preferences, team dynamics, and throughout the course of this call, you'll probably understand why Tony and I have developed a, a really strong relationship, friendship, over the last kind of five to ten years because there's a lot of kinship in terms of the way that we actually think about not only football, but people and developing high-performance teams. Hi, all. Nice to meet you. So my name's Clark Ray. I've worked for the last 25 years or so in manufacturing. Originally, years ago, on the shop floor, working in quality production-based process engineering and that sort of thing. But over the course of the next sort of five to 10 years, getting more into uh, organisational behaviour. So training, problem solving from an organisational point of view. And some of you may have seen from Rob's post yesterday that I had an accident about four months ago that has actually caused me to go the reverse route that Rob's taken. And I've gone from the big picture all the way down to just working one-on-one, certainly at the moment anyway, because it's next to impossible for me to spend any amount of time on the shop floor, which is where I prefer to be, right in the middle of I've spent the last sort of 15, 20 years, especially on the shop floor, in the middle of the chaos while we implement change initiatives and that sort of thing. Um, Over the course of the last three to four months, I've literally just come out of that body brace that you saw in the video yesterday. And I've had to focus very closely on who my ideal customer is at the moment. And it's great, actually. It's been a game changer for me. I'm now working one-on-one with people. And there's not that much difference between organisational behaviour and people. We're just as messy as individuals as we are as teams. Basically, the idea of the call is in looking at teams. So that the podcast is the Unified Team Podcast. And it's looking at how can we join together? Because I think even from individually, when you look at marriages, more than half of marriages fail. 70% of business partnerships fail. Whatever we do, whenever we join with people, we find it difficult to, there's always a breaking point where conflict breaks down the relationship. And I think there's no better example than a a sports team. And football is the most, definitely in, in our part of the world, is the most reported on it's the easiest to see the dynamics and the results are, are clear there's so much pressure between one team and another it seems to me that 
how unified you can make it is a great advantage. When you look at the difference between Liverpool and Man City, it's such fine margins and there's such pressure that I think there's a lot of lessons that we can learn. Clark and I are enthusiastic amateurs, observers, but you two, Tony and Thomas, you've lived the dream. Football's been your profession. You've reached the highest levels. Now, both of you have business and football backgrounds. So I'm interested to learn what are those transferable skills and what can we learn that we can translate to manufacturing service or any other team from your experiences in in football teams interestingly Clark, predominantly my core customers at the moment are, are in manufacturing and when i first transitioned out of football I, I went into a sort of technical supply chain maintenance environment so i went from managing a football team to as part of my learning and development journey managing a team of rail maintenance fitters to improve standard work procedure so I went I was, I was a Man United fan I'm in Liverpool underneath the massive diesel train trying to help five different shifts of scousers be better at, at fixing trains I knew when I was under a big train and a hard hat that I was definitely transferring skills at that point but to go back to the question if, if I start with this I've been a manager from day one building a club from scratch I've also been a manager that's gone into a new environment on the back of somebody else losing a job two very different situations but regardless of that the point that i first contact if i assume that everything that i am is going to be well received by this group of diverse complex individuals that stand in front of me i've already lost half the room before i've even realized it and the potential at that point is terminal potentially so when it, i think it's easy to look at it from the outside and, and see the football merry-go-round as it's just business as usual it's just normal coaches go in they take their staff with them that it worked in club a let's transfer it to club b and suddenly it doesn't work so they take the same persona the same methodology the same people and expect it to be transportable from one to another without any difference and of course we see this big shift that managers suddenly get fired up and fight, it just doesn't work. A lot of that is down to this real intimate lack of understanding of the differences that are happening right in front of us, not just those that we can observe, but those that we can't. And the more that we get visibility and understanding of what's going on on an individual level, the better chance we've got at addressing them at the place where they want to be addressed. So instead of me going in and saying, here I am, this is what I do, this is what we're doing. It's more of a two-way exploration of where we can go together. I think just, just to make a point on that, uh, Tony, I think you right back at the beginning of what you were saying, you just said something, I, I had to write it down because I think you hit something that for me is probably the, the, the core of a lot of the issues that we face as organisations. Obviously, I come from an organisational background and a lot of the a lot of the work that I did in manufacturing, I always refer back to I was in the military for some years. So that's a culture, if you like, of how teams should be, according to the, the philosophy that the military in this country espouses, obviously. But you said something at the, at the beginning there about how you were helping these guys to uh, work with standard work, standard operating procedures and so on. It's the very first thing that I ask myself when I'm working with any, originally with organisations, but now with people. What's the standard? When you say that we're, we have a problem, compared to what? what where are you now? And where do you think you should be? And how do we close that gap? And really, the, 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 the more important questions for me are, how do you know you're there? How do you know you're as good as you I, uh, There was a factory I worked at in the Midlands where I stood watching this assembly line for about three weeks. 
And then I spoke to the supervisor and the, the guys that work there and said, so what do you guys think you're accomplishing at the moment? They, they were outputting certain machines over the course of a day. And what they told me was completely different to what I was seeing. The problem that you think you've got isn't the problem. So the place you're trying to get to is the wrong place. So that, for me, that's a, an absolutely crucial question. What's the standard? What's the benchmark? And it really feeds into culture, doesn't it? When Rob was talking about football, I was thinking of the Claudio Ranieri Leicester team that was really a team of individuals working together. It was a culture that you could see. And that doesn't seem to have translated anywhere else. So it, it really depends what you're walking into and what the standards are, as you quite rightly say. If you go in there thinking everything's fine, you're already working with one hand tied behind your back. Yeah, good observation. I, th- I think that's a really interesting point, actually, Clark, because something that Tony and I speak about, and it's a, it's a fundamental belief in mine, is that the the, the diagnosis as a, as a head coach is, is really important. And Tony and I have been exploring ecological dynamics recently, which is a, a coaching, learning theory, transfer of learning, and shifting the role of the, the head coach and the manager as someone who imparts knowledge to that of the problem setter, the challenge provider, and then allowing the discovery on the training pitch to come from how skillfully you can create sessions. The, the step before that, and I, I use something called the SoStack model. I don't know if you've heard of it before. I've also designed a diagnostic over the years because I think that temperature check, that that look under the bonnet of a business or a football club to actually understand where are they just now? Because every situation is unique. So the situation, where are we? The objectives, where do we want to be? The strategy, how are we actually going to get them there? And then it starts to talk about tactics, what uh, specifically needs to be done, what priorities of action will we commit to, and then how will we monitor and control and ensure that we're actually making progress. That's something that I really fundamentally believe in because if every leadership opportunity, whether it be in business or in football, is unique, that diagnosis process and however you go about getting to the, the right temperature then you can actually decide what leadership tools you're going to take out the toolbox, how you're actually going to make discriminating choices, leadership in general. It's a big game of snakes and ladders, and I'm sure at times in our leadership careers, we're navigating our leadership career and we're getting promoted and salaries are improving, and then we actually make either the wrong choice or for whatever reason, we, and then we slip back down to a point that's either maybe inner control or it's outer control. When I think back to my my 15 years as a recruiter, I was picking up a lot of skills around asking open questions because as a a recruiter, you only want to be talking for 15% of the time. So if you start off every conversation hoping that the other person is going to do two-thirds of the talking as, as a benchmark, you start to get an understanding of, of body language and voluntary reactions. You start to understand their hopes and their fears and their aspirations. That all then really starts to become powerful because you have a part to play in helping these people get to where they need to get to. If a player tells me that I want to reach the English Premiership and another player tells me, look, I'm just looking to get my next contract, then I'm going to retire. The leadership approach to both of those players are completely different because the the necessary demands for the highly aspirational player means that you really need to give him a diet or her a diet that is commensurate with helping the player close the capacity gap. So for me, there's a lot of parallels between business and football management. It's difficult to talk about them 
too often though because football fans see the game and rightfully in quite a simplistic way it's very tribal and they don't actually want to hear the, the, the head coach and manager talking about so stack models and all of these types of things so you have to develop a way of actually keeping that under the radar but you are absolutely using these models and having the quality conversations and it's why I'm grateful for having people like Tony really close to me to, to share some of these conversations with. I, I love all, all the, the the way that the conversation's gone because this is exactly what I'm trying to do with relationships. I look at relationships in the same way that 300 years ago, like when there was a plague, everyone thought it was miasma or they thought it was a, a curse from God or a witch's curse. So we had no idea how to treat it. And now we understand germ theory. We're able to look and we're able to diagnose and we're able to prescribe the exact right antibiotic or whatever treatment. And in relationships, if you look at how people talk about them, they're talking about finding the one or arrow and all of these kind of things, which are very vague and there's nothing that you can actually deal with. And so for me, it's about benchmarking relationships within a team and being able to diagnose what is good, what is off and that. So it's really one thing I want to ask from that is, is you said soul stack. Yeah, so soul stack, S-O-S-T-A-C. Relationships are one area. And I think the more that we can have that diagnosed, the more we have control over it. I think it's really key as well about the culture at different managers work at different cultures. You can see that in a football context. I think you were about to say something, Clark. I'm literally just responding to the, the, the stuff that you guys are saying. It's fascinating that we're clearly talking around the same subject, although potentially from different directions. But you, you talk about this idea of how we used to think that it was the vapours or miasma or whatever you called it, where we get diseases from. And, that, and now we know, right? Now we know how diseases work. That's the bit that amazes me because I, I did a post yesterday and I do this stuff on purpose as I can be a bit of a dick. But I put a post out yesterday about uh, how we, it's it's quite right that we should look at some of the psychological aspects of these things. But I think it's a little bit misguided to think that these things are the answer. I put a post out yesterday talking about how we should make the unconscious conscious. Talking from a one-to-one psych interview. And I got some interesting answers and some people say, that's right, how do you go about it? And my answer is, well, is it right? It's just what we think at the moment. It's just, you know, we, we were talking about miasma and vapours years ago. Now we're talking about the conscious and the unconscious. And they can both be absolute nonsense. Who knows? At some point in the future, we, we may come up with an even better answer. And I, I always think it's a mistake to think that you've got the answers. Tony said right at the beginning, there, if you go in there thinking that you know what's going on, you're already in trouble. And I often ask People. How do you know? How do you know? There's a thing that we used to have in manufacturing called jump into solutions, which you've probably all heard. The people see a problem and they diagnose it immediately. It's this, so we'll do that. What a nightmare that can turn. Sometimes you're lucky and that unfortunately reinforces a bad behavior. But nine times out of 10, somebody in the room is sitting there thinking, no, no, that's not good. And you've already then got some disunity within the, within the team. So it's fascinating, this idea of diagnosing, because how do you do that? And I think it's great to start, and I always do this, when I'm working with teams or with people. When I ask people, how do you know? I'm not assuming that I do know. I don't. I think I know. I've got some good ideas, and I, I've spoken to some really clever people. They've told me some different ways of doing things. But we're really just, it all, the answer is always, it depends. It depends on the problem. It depends on the people that we're working with. But I always have the belief that the person or the organisation or the team has the resources within it to solve its own problems. We just don't know what they are just yet. So that's what this conversation has to be about, right? That prompts me to zoom in on a football situation. 
changes second by second, right? So every time the ball moves, a collective group of people have to make a conscious choice about what they're going to do next. Me as an individual, where's the ball? What's my job? Am I closing down? Am I covering someone? And it's got to happen collectively. If we're going to score a goal, it has to be alignment in such a short space of time of ideas and action needs to be perfect. Otherwise, at the top end of the game, it just doesn't happen. Things break down, so it breaks down repeatedly. This idea that, Clark, you were talking about, this jump into this individual, that independent choice to go and take action that might come at a significant cost down the line that you didn't think it through or you were too spontaneous or it was never on in the first place you weren't competent enough to do what you thought you could do there's all these things going on that could go wrong it happens in football all the time the classic one of i've got the ball i think you're going to make the run i play it but you didn't make the run i thought that was a brilliant pass you didn't even think it was a run worth making so just two people can get it wrong so many so frequently so i think what thomas and i talk about a lot is interdependence in the decision making on the pitch you need a group of people who actually are conversant enough in the idea and the intention to recognize that actually right now in this moment in time this is the optimum pass to make these are the optimum runs to make these are the optimum positions i need to take up just in case it goes wrong so you get this when it's at its most beautiful, the game looks like it's so easy. The, the Barcelona going back a few years, it was just Manchester City. Now it, it's on another, it's on another plane. And you throw that into a, a leadership team or a management team in a business, the speed of decisions is not happening as quick. The changes are not coming as quick and fast as they are in in football. But the independent choices that people make without getting the alignment on it is am i making the right choice here let's go and explore it the the silos that have formed so people resist having those conversations cost businesses so much they cost relationships within teams up and down the line cross-functionally there's all sorts of problems going on in in a football environment you train you come back you train the 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 uh, I'll leave it there because I, I know Thomas can jump in on this. He he, he speaks really fluently about it. It's, but that idea of independence versus interdependence is, I think, exactly what we in our best state as coaches or managers or leaders, we are getting people aligned on intention and then skilling them up to maximise opportunities whenever they present themselves. I think it's perfectly put, Tony, and, and I think we're actually trying to to do all of that whilst our own landscape has changed. When, when I was on the Pro Licence recently, Tony Pulis was one of the guest speakers and they had a, a really diverse mix of expert speakers from Arteta, Michael Beale, Tony Pulis, Russell Martin. We even had Carlo Ancelotti, so there's a real breadth of expertise and experience. But something that Tony Pulis said is when he got his first big role in, in football, the first year was essentially to diagnose, so lots of time, don't need to make any quick decisions. Second year was the starting of you putting your ideas into the team. And then the third year was the, the acid test of whether or not you would make it as a manager. Now, we're probably open at in an environment where a seven-game cycle can decide whether or not you stay in a job or come under extreme intense scrutiny. So the, the diagnosis itself for me is, is really important because, again, maybe 80% of the diagnosis that you're doing is actually going to go challenged. It's just going to be something that, again, from a temperature check perspective, you've spoke about, someone else has noticed something, someone else has actually contributed to an idea about a relationship that could be harmonised together. Because I think all too often, coaches and managers often think about 
their needs about how they want the team to play, where I think Tony and I come into it a little bit differently in terms of Damien Hughes' statement around performance leaves clues. What we want to know as well, what evidence is on the pitch? What are we going to measure? And what priorities are we going to decide upon so that we're always going to stay ahead of that seven-game curve? Because as a leader in the football industry, and very unlike in business, we make people redundant every single week by not selecting them in the team or even at times selecting them to be on the, on the bench. So culturally, that creates a, a really big shift every single week because there's never once, and I don't know if Tony can concur with this, but there's never once where a player has come to me and said, look, Gaffer, you're, you're right, I don't deserve to play this week. Every single player thinks they deserve to play. The emotional contract that I think you're signing with players, and this is something that, just fits my personality, it, it suits my principles and values. But if a player has played for me one week and I'm not going to pick him in the 11 the following week, I always speak to him before I, I name the team. And that's just my way of actually turning anger into disappointment. Because I think with football and professionals in general, I think if you're honest with them, you're authentic, they know your intentions are honourable, I think players at least then will be disappointed, but then there won't be an anger out on the training pitch and at least then they will commit to being a, a professional on the pitch, whereas in business and the protection of HR and probably the ramifications of performance on a day-to-day basis and in the normal business environment, it's not tantamount to making people redundant Whereas a poor training session or a poor attitude in football can essentially make you redundant for that week. There's a couple of great points there. One I'd like to ask is about in, in terms of the diagnosis. So Thomas and Tony, when you go into a new position, you've got seven games to make that difference and you need to know who's on board, who's not. What do you? What are you looking for that diagnosis? That's a great question. I'll think about that while Thomas answers. The, re- the reason I say that is because I'm longer out of the game I'm still managing in the game. I'm managing in the elite women's pyramid as a volunteer coach. So it's a semi-professional environment, but there's no money changing hands. It's uh, it's my way of keeping in touch with the game, sharpening my toolkit, applying different principles that I'm using in business and seeing if what works in football, does it work in the same way? I'll, I'll get to my response shortly, but the things that I want visibility and understanding of are things that we can't see. So I want to get close enough to understanding the individuals within the team from an instinctive motivation, intrinsic motivational level. I want to know what what makes them tick. I can only do that by assessment or by asking the right questions. Can I ask a supplementary question to your question, Rob? I'm I'm hoping that Thomas will be able to answer this as he gets into answering your question. I was just thinking about, how do you make a diagnosis? Having started in manufacturing, predominantly in the quality and continuous improvement arena back in the day, it's all about problem solving. And, and I think I've mentioned to you before, Rob, that in manufacturing, as you guys know, the, the problem solving is its own discrete discipline. It's a part of the manufacturing process. Because obviously, if, if a product goes out the door with a defect, you don't want that defect re- repeated in every single thing that comes out the door. And so in the problem solving arena, I have often found myself asking, and it's probably now my first go-to question, is if this is a problem, we've decided that this is a problem. And the first part of dif- of, of solving a problem is defining it but having done that we now have to ask ourselves was there a process to achieve this particular standard that you're trying to achieve and did you follow that process and if you didn't why and if you did and it didn't work why isn't it working 
And it, it revolves predominantly for me these days around processes. And I'm fortunate to have been a long-suffering Aston Villa fan for the last 40 years, 40-odd years. And we've now got a really interesting manager that's just come into the organisation. And Rummies being the people that they are, we think that we're going to win the World Cup. We're going to win everything. We're in fourth and we're, we're disappointed already. But it's interesting to see this guy come into the organisation because he came in clearly with a preset process. And you could tell he was saying to the fans, he was saying to, to the owners, and he was saying to the team, trust the process, trust the process. And most people do. It seems to me that, that he sold people on this process because clearly it's working. And I've often had conversations with business owners because they talk about the culture. We need to change the culture because the behavior is wrong. And I, I say, no, change the behavior, then the culture will change. And the thing that is, if you change the behavior, the culture will, will change automatically because you're changing the behavior according to your processes. And I was just wondering, when you talk about diagnosis, uh, Rob, Thomas, is that the approach that you guys follow? It seems that you have some sort of a process that you try to, to work to and, and try to get people to buy into from marketing. It's actually a really good point about being IMA, and I, th- I think we can actually probably cover that in this answer. And I, I think one barometer of, of that clarity for me is he actually has his own dedicated staff so you typically find head coaches and managers that will only take on opportunities if they can bring their people, have a robustness of process, of approach, of methodology, and it's almost like plug and play. As soon as we come in from day one, you're going to see and feel quite a significant and shift. And the second part of the question, and, and I'm sure we'll cover that as we, we start to discuss, at the start of my career, as a manager, I, I was given the responsibility of taking over a team as a player manager and we hadn't won a competitive game for 20 games. So if you can think about that, even from a football fan, how the fans are feeling, how the players are feeling, how me as a 32-year-old, probably still one of the better players, the captain, now the leader of trying to renavigate that this team towards a better performance. And then I actually looked at my own personality preferences because... I was immersed in that environment, so highly extroverted, high levels of insights talk about is fiery red energy, so we know that's very purposeful, very demanding. On a bad day, it could be overbearing, it could overly scrutinise, and you can actually lose a dressing room on some of those bad day behaviours. So recognising that, I actually just started on an Excel spreadsheet looking at, at performance because if performance leaves clues, I think the first thing that, that head coaches in the football industry have to do is get clarity on the brief. Because head coaches these days are a disposable commodity. And you, you could argue that it's now a diminished role from the Sir Alex Ferguson days where these guys were all seeing all-powerful, now they're just a really important cog in the wheel. Get Getting access and clarity on those priorities, I think for me, is really important. Some clubs will want you to be involved in developing academy players. The cut runs will be important. Playing style will be important. How you develop relationships internally will be important. Other clubs, and I would imagine that these will be in the minority, they'll just want results. They'll just want us to get up the league. So that's completely fine because as a head coach, if you can get clarity on what the brief is, then you can actually then go about diagnosing. And the the first point for me is always actually looking at the performance of the team in terms of what you're inheriting. Is there any themes? Is there any trends? 
internally and externally, how are you going to cultivate a message? Because what you see internally, as you know from business, and what you see externally, whether it be to stakeholders, investors, it might be a little bit different. And I always feel that storytelling, and it's something that, that Tony's really exploring and exploring through me just now, the ability to hook people to a story. So for example, if, if you take over a team that is at the end of that seven, eight match cycle, and you've got the benefit of new head coach thinking, and they're thinking, man, we're in a relegation battle, and you actually, through the evaluation and the diagnosis of the team, are able to say, do you know something? See, last year, you were actually in the exact same position. And it's a historical trend that this team takes a little bit of time to get going. But once they do get going, by the end, they're usually competing for a playoff position. Now, that's a hypothetical example to fit my narrative here. But straight away from that under the bonnet, under the iceberg diagnosis, you're actually able to take a group of players that Tony was alluding to earlier thinking, okay, Mr. Head Coach, what, what is it that you're going to impart onto me? Are we going to agree after this meeting to move forward or are you still going to have to convince me? That storytelling element for me is actually really important to actually hook the players and actually give them an indication that you take a long-term approach and that you actually have solutions in mind for this apparently problematic situation. And then the second thing that I like to do, because football clubs are exploding with expertise, which is a challenge in itself, I think there has to be tools to very quickly get an understanding of how competent are these players. And also, from a cultural perspective, who actually fits with our current predicament and also where it is that we want to go. And it's not to say that if someone is highlighted as a maverick or a problematic character that we're going to ostracise them. But it's actually something that needs to be either addressed or we need to go looking for more evidence. So this diagnosis process for me is, is really critical in terms of benchmarking, which then informs the types of sessions that we put on, benchmarking to inform one-to-one -one group and unit conversations, and also to actually understand how the squad has actually been designed because at Dundee United, we wanted to develop and trade assets. Therefore, the design of the squad needed to be very lean and versatile. And we also needed to have a very good, strong core group of enablers, senior professionals that actually allowed the young players to develop. Whereas in another club like Aston Villa, Tottenham, they've got 30 players of similar quality. So it's a dog-eat-dog, -dog, every man for themselves type mentality. Therefore, the opportunity is completely different. But this diagnosis and this brief-taking process is really critical for the way that I like to manage, the way that I like to actually integrate the expertise of the staff and also make some really good, strong decisions that essentially can get you credibility and an invitation to move forward with the players. That was brilliant. I, I wanted to make more notes as you were writing that. I, I really enjoyed that. The idea that you reframe a situation to suit the new narrative is really, I think, probably what all leadership and all coaching should be about. Wherever you are right now, how do we understand that and how can we change that into something else? I often have conversations with, or I used to before the accident, have conversations about strategy. What is your strategy? And it's usually this mad, enormous document. And if you try to get them to interpret that to, the, to how that gets translated to the people on the shop floor, most don't know. So what story is that telling to, to, to these guys? Where are we trying to get to? And it calls to mind that talking about teams that may be on a bad run, for instance, 
I was working with an assembly line that had enormous problems and the unions were involved. There were people wanting to strike and all sorts of things. And these are the people I said I was watching for several weeks. But having had the conversation with them, you reframe that situation and say, how would this look if by such and such a, I think I gave them uh, a target of six months down the line, that we were actually able to finish at four, clean up, go and have a cup of tea, have a debrief. And the disbelief on the guy's faces was brilliant because that helps you. They're, they're then asking you to convince me, tell me that this is something that can happen. And it did happen. Save the, the company enormous amounts of money, but it's about reframing that narrative. Yeah, that was brilliant. I'm still taking in all, all the parts. So it's really about a lot of listening, of understanding where everyone is and mapping out the culture, the historical trends, stakeholders' expectations, what assets you've got and really it comes down to purpose and everything is like a 360 degree understanding of the club because uh, you can see we Unai Emery didn't really work at Arsenal and Arsenal is a, a club with a strong tradition and they were they were probably already they would have been historically a top club and so there's going to be a little bit of resistance and there's going to be comparison with Arsene Wenger and all the great teams and it's interesting what you say about changing the narrative because I'm a Liverpool fan and Klopp is the poster boy for unifying the team. It's interesting what you said about some some people will bring their whole thing. Whereas I look at also Guardiola brought four people to Man City because he didn't want to unsettle everyone. Because if, if you come in as a new manager and you've brought in your new players and one of the problems that Klopp had was Liverpool had underperformed for 30 years and all the players lacked self-belief. There was a belief that they weren't good enough from themselves and also from the fans. So as soon as they did something wrong, the fans were like, oh, we're going to fail again. One of the great things that he did was say to them, no, you are good enough. I want you in the team. And suddenly changing that gave people belief. And when he got the fans on board, there was the instance, I think it was Stoke, when they drew with Stoke and he got them to applaud the, the fans and it was building the unity. There's so much of what you've said that I think is applicable but one of the problems I've written down is I don't think in business we have that same feedback. And I think what you're talking about is so much quicker feedback so that we're able to see when we're on track and when we're off track. I just pick up on the cultural conversation. And I had a chat with a, a colleague of mine last week, and, and I'm not sure who wrote this, but they talked about culture as being the sum of its interactions. So if we talk about the behaviour driving the culture not culture driving the behavior looking at it through your lens that it exactly speaks of that and to get a sum of interactions it's your culture is positive interactions minus negative interactions so take all of the conversations that are being had on the shop floor in the day or in the changing room when the coach isn't looking and the quality of the culture is determined by what percentage is positively iterated and what percentage is negatively iterated take one from the other and see where you're at and that resonated so strongly with me from both sides of the fence when I've been in a football environment when I've been in a, an operational environment even now as I'm thinking as I'm speaking in recent interventions that I've had in the manufacturing sector and, and of course I'm the kind of person where people are going to bring their grievances to me they're going to say things to me that they're not they don't have the, the safety or trust to, to say openly within the group for, 
fear of ramifications or, or whatever it may be. The environment hasn't been built robustly enough yet for them to have those conversations the way I, I would like them to have if I thought they were optimised. But I sense that the culture deficit is significant. And if my recent um, forays into manufacturing sector are indicative of what's happening more broadly, I would say lots of organisations need a lot of help with understanding what they actually mean by culture, because they've all got their value statements on the wall. And, and perhaps they were written by two boards ago, and the, the companies tried to uphold those over time. But all the people have changed, and they've got different ideals and different value sets. So the behaviours don't actually match anymore. So there's a whole can of worms opened if we go too far down that path. But I, I, I really think that positive interactions minus negative interactions does equate to a good cultural litmus test what, what, what rob just said was really the answer to what you were just saying there about the culture because when he said that whereas in football teams there's, there's almost immediate feedback to the managers how well they're doing mm-hmm. what, what the culture is everybody can see it is it, mm-hmm. and it's totally transparent and organizations and businesses don't tend to have that so much it is possible for a boss to live in an ivory tower or to hide himself away uh, for managers to not get out on the shop floor and, and, and avoid the conversations that are, going, that are going out on the shop floor. And I've been saying for years, I've been pushing this idea of this 10th man, which was not my idea. This is the, the 10th man principle was invented by the Israelis 50 years ago. Um, but I've been pushing it in organisations for exactly that reason that you just mentioned, Tony. And that is that the, the manager of a football club he has to be the person that creates the ethos around which everything else revolves. Even as, if, as Thomas says, they're a smaller part of a bigger machine, but they are the person that everybody looks to. Whereas in an organisation, the boss can create a strategy, he can filter down and tell all of the various managers to, to carry out certain parts of, of his strategy without actually getting too involved. And this idea of the 10th man is the person that says, what are you doing? Get out of there, go and talk to them. You did a Gemba walk, as if you actually did do a Gemba walk, because you really just walked around to let people see your face. You didn't ask anybody anything. You didn't look at anything. You weren't measuring KPIs or metrics. Get out there. The 10th the man is the person that says, how do you know what's really going on? So what are your decisions based on? The manager of a football club knows almost immediately, if he's any good, of course. He, he gets the feedback. He gets the vibe. He reads the room in the dressing room and so on. Businesses don't have that so much. And so people like yourself, Tony, I would say somebody like you, apart from all the other things you do, you are the what I would call the ideal 10th man. You're the person that says, Hold on a minute. Let's just wait because I don't think what you think is going on is actually going on. And that's really important because you don't get that. And organisations can go years without the boss knowing what the hell's going on, which is a terrible situation to be. Yeah, absolutely. Just by the way, well, I remember just picking up on on the feedback being instant in football and picking up on the fact that you're a Villa fan. No, no doubt you're a fan of Mark Bosnich. Well, yeah, the, yeah, the, the goal here. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, so a little connection. So Bozer is now one of the top pundits in in Australia, in the A-League on TV. And in terms of immediate feedback, I was interviewed. We just got beat by Sydney FC away at Sydney Football Stadium. Horrendous time for me personally, but in the immediate post-match interview, I put the headphones on the side of the pitch, microphone in, in my ear, Mark Bosnich. Tony, it's Bozza. Can you tell me why you don't think it's time you should resign? You think it, do you think it's time you resign straight after a, a game? So I can resonate with the fact that in football, you do get pretty instant feedback. And during the game, obviously, you've got the fans. Feedback tell you what I think, right? 
Strive. Some people are thinking about it this way. Before a game, with the prospect of this, you know that immediate feedback is coming your way whether you do something good or you do something bad. Or if you're the coach, the team plays well or the team plays badly. You know that this feedback's coming. And as the players are lining up, there'll be someone at one end of the spectrum that is absolutely relishing the opportunity to go and show what they can do. And there'll be somebody else who's absolutely terrified of making a mistake that might cost them the game. And everyone's somewhere between those two polar opposites. Everybody sits. It's absolutely critical that the coach, the head coach and manager, is able to help those people navigate those emotional what could be emotional barriers to taking too much risk or emotional barriers to not performing at all. We're hoping that this new lad, Gauchi, is going to be the new Mark Bosnich because he's a, he's a big, confident Australian lad, isn't he? He was a kid when I was there. The thing that you just mentioned, though, about managing the, that spectrum of emotions that players, and you can translate this to organisations as well. I've been into businesses where within a short period of time, you can spot there's an enormous talent in certain parts of the business. And you think, well, what's happened there? Thomas mentioned silos and stuff earlier. The, these guys, for whatever reason, for whatever the, the culture has pushed them into dark corners of the business. And that's the opportunity for you then to have that one-on-one relationship with them and say, listen, it's a clean slate now. The culture is going to change and you're going to be a part of that and, and so on. But it's really all about, from an organisational point of view, it's letting everybody know that whatever's gone on before, their aspirations can still be realised as long as everybody works together according to this new reframed narrative that you bring in. And it does require somebody to, to actually bring out into the open. It's that sort of emperor's new clothes situation, isn't it? To say, look, come on, we all know that was bollocks. We can't live by that belief anymore. But it has to be discussed. It sometimes even involves, and I've invited this many times in boardrooms, it has to be argued. Passions can run high and because people will hold beliefs around certain parts of the business. But And you can't manage that until that conversation has been Got out into the I think just on that, the, the 10th man concept has, has really resonated with me because I think something that Tony and I try and have as, a, as an outlier benefit to the way that we approach leadership and management in sport is to almost have that 10th man intrinsically within ourselves because I think as a head coach, if you take one example of a practice that doesn't quite go according to plan, that's actually your best feedback because if the players haven't quite taken to a certain practice, they've not given the appropriate commitment or energy that you wanted them to, a lot of coaches will instantly go to blaming the players. Whereas as the head coach, I always actually say, guys, let's watch the session back. Let's actually reflect on the planning process, the execution, and now the quality of the review because if we intentionally planned it, with all the players in mind, and I think Tony makes a good point in the the planning process, you can actually put individual constraints into a session that actually starts to address maybe the emotional challenges or the the tactical challenges that, that players have. All too often in football, I think coaches design sessions on autopilot because conceptually we have an understanding of the game We have an understanding of the game that we would like to see and then we design a practice for that to somehow come out. And when it doesn't, our go-to response is to blame the players. They're not good enough. He's got something on his mind. He he doesn't like doing these types of practices. 
But Tony introduced me to a concept that is obviously very well renowned in terms of self-determination theory. That's something that in every single conversation, every single practice design, I like those things to be represented in terms of the players having choice, the players feeling like this is preparing them to perform when the pressure's on and when it really matters, and also to feel connected to my wants and needs, the needs of the team, but also them to themselves and their teammates. I think when you have self-determination theory running through conversations, decisions, practice design, every element of your football club, then by and large, you actually start to foster some really good human interactions. It is. It's trying to tie all of that together um, in terms of the culture the like one as humans if we have one positive and one negative we're going to focus on the negative so in relationships there's research that shows that in a good relationship they have five positive interactions to one negative when you look at culture there's a direct analogy to gut bacteria and is a constantly changing environment if there's too many bad bacteria getting we get sick and when you look if you look at facebook it has most monetized human emotions and human attention and they've worked out that they have to show seven things that you like in a feed before they show one advert and in the same way tv has worked out how much tv you need to have against it, how many adverts before you're gonna so all of that i think is feeds into the same way as a culture so basically as the team coach as the leader of an organization you have to do something that's completely alien to us as humans you can't just be someone that just goes in and go oh i'm up and down you have to be able to maintain like the leader has to be the one who goes in every day and who, who sets off the interactions so if we're talking in human human interactions someone has to trust first someone has to have belief as you were saying some people don't have that belief in themselves some people will let themselves down and then into all the mix and just to add back to to the bosnich thing that there is a social media trend i think players that haven't managed probably don't have a real appreciation of what the other side of the role is they also have to play to the crowd a little bit in this is what the fans want to hear and this is what's going to create drama and this is what's going to create controversy and i think organizations have that same dynamic and sometimes it's entrenched in say manufacturing or somewhere where there's a is a culture of like skepticism and cynicism and all of that plays into that into that whole mix of the culture and so it's a lot of pressure for the manager because you've got to be the one that starts off you've got to be the one that sets the example and even when you have all that pressure you've still got to be able to maintain the positivity because you've got to be the one that sets the tone so how do you deal when things aren't going well so for example in that instance how do you keep faith keep the culture positive keep the interactions positive with all that going on and you as a human feeling human emotions we are all human first and foremost is that there's a sense that the reality is we need to be at our best when we need to be at our best and that's not every minute of every day it's when it's required so that's about managing energy it's about managing health it's about managing mood it's ultimately self-awareness and sometimes there are life events, and I've been through it, there are life events that shake that to the core and just don't allow you to have the capacity that you need to be fully on when you need to be fully on. That comes at a cost. But if I think about what, what do we want? If we want everyone to be at their best when it's so on game day, we want everyone to be at their best, to give us the best chance to win the game. There's a big push to get all the boxes out on Friday afternoon, last shift of the week. Can we really pull together and deliver? And for whatever reason, people don't show up 
on the day for different reasons emotional concerns events that have happened physically they just don't feel it it's life rights it's we're humans so to provide a framework that to the large degree cuts through all that and at least gives a backbone i'll refer back to thomas's reference to self-determination theory in order to provide the optimum amount of autonomy per person based of course there's a process of course there's a structure of course there's a set of constraints that in order for this system that we're going to adopt to work at its best we need these things to happen these are the deliverables within that here's the optimum amount of autonomy that each person needs some people need all the information spoon fed to them others need to be told once and left well alone to crack on with it and let them make their own choices as to how they go about it so you got again these for whatever it is that we determine needs to happen for the team, somebody is most closely aligned to that and somebody is least closely aligned to that. The one that's least closely aligned, it may not be terminal, it may not be, but it might need some adjustment. Have they got the right amount of autonomy? Are they, am I putting them in a role that they're capable of? Or if it's an academy player stepping up, are they not going to sink? They can grow into it. They're surrounded by the the, the enablers that Thomas is talking about. They're, They're surrounded by people that can help them through difficult moments in a game. And then I suppose optimally is my relationship to them the one that they need? The classic, do you need a kick up the bum or an arm around your shoulder is as simplistic as it gets. But to what degree? How intimate do I need to be with this person? How direct do I need to be to this person? It's not how close we are. It's how do I get the best out of them on their terms? They need to be told what to do. They need to negotiate with me in order that we agree that this is the right thing to do. Or they need to be enthused and empowered to go and be the player that we know they can be. They need to be, it needs to be motive. It needs to be on your day. You can, oh, the crowd love it when you do these things. Do they need that? Some do. Some shut up. Leave me alone. Just let me, I'm an introvert. Just let me play my headphones. Don't, you spoke to me yesterday. I'm happy with my headphones on. Keep it down. So that relatedness is absolutely essential. We get those three things, and the same applies to a operational environment, manufacturing environment, or a tech company, or a sales team. If as the sales leader, I know those three things are absolutely vital to intrinsic motivation, and I fail to apply that principle to everybody within the team, then I'm designing suboptimal performance. It, that's with me. Now, when I landed on this, I've been able to play it back through my career and realize when it was in play for me without knowing what the theory was back then, when I was naturally using it and it was working well for me with the group of players that I was working for. So I can play it through my own experiences. When did I have autonomy? When did I have great relationships that were supporting me to do what I wanted to do to be successful? And when did I feel like I was on top of my game? and stretching big wins and I know that you can see how my energy's gone up talking about those times because I was fully immersed in a highly motivational situation that was working well for me for me the leader is the, the job is to find that in everybody it's really hard to, it's not surprising that most people don't lots of people probably don't even know that exists as a principle but regardless it's not surprising that you go from one complex environment football team to another and it's not automatically there's too many moving parts that framework is a way to scoop up a lot of moving parts at least into something that is easily understandable and transferable because it matters to all of us that seems to me tony to be the probably the the key to being i was going to say a good leader to be the, to being the leader that the, 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 the team needs however you want to put that this this idea that whilst you're managing all these moving parts you have to be above all else the embodiment of all of the values 
that you're a spouse into the rest of your team and organisation. You have to live it. And that reminded me of, remember David O'Leary when he was at Villa and he, I don't know why he did it, but he, he talked about the fans being fickle. It was such a, talk about shooting yourself in the foot. And then at the very next game, there was a massive sign that said, we're not fickle, we just don't like it. And that goes back to what, you got to applaud that. Like, well said. Let's, <laughs> they don't get any snarkier than football fans, do they? It goes back to what Thomas was saying about this idea of the 10th man being, actually being the 10th man yourself. I've had this conversation with lots of bosses that it's not necessary to have somebody else there to just point out where you might be going wrong or where you might be going over the edge of a cliff. Ideally, if the boss can be that person, if the if the manager can be that person, he then is not only managing the moving parts, as you said, Tony, and embodying the values of the organisation of spouses, but he's also self-checking constantly so that he doesn't call the fans fickle, so that he doesn't tell the customers that we know what's the best way to do this. I always say to, to, to organisations, you've got to start with the bit that's closest to the customer because they're the people that matter and, and then work backwards. And you're at the very back of the queue. But every decision that you make, every idea that is put forward, every time everybody says, yes, this is brilliant, let's do this. You have to ask yourself and you're the only person that can ask, is this right? Are we operating against the proper benchmark here? Do we really know what's going on? And if that person can do all of those things, can be the 10th the man that self-checks and embody the values of the organisation, like you said, Tony, and manage everybody else's behaviour. And he's a good boss, right? That's why they're on the rockstar wages. That, that's I the second that time that you've spoken, Clark. And all I'm hearing is um, Len, Lencioni's five dysfunctions of a team. I, I'm now at 42 and through conversations with a lot of different people, now able to say the Sostak model was really important to me. Transformational leadership is really important to me. The absence of trust and the vulnerability of the leader to be receptive to feedback, to be receptive to potentially underperforming, that for me is really important. And it's something that comes at you as a football coach, whether you want it or not, because if you were to type in any of our names as a head coach on social media, that feedback will be there. It'll be live. It'll be instant. And it will be quite strong and Very you strong. can decide if you if you take it or not. But there, there will be learnings from it. To Rob's initial point, I, I think it, the key thing for me is, again, controlling the narrative because if the barometer of your success is three points every Saturday, then the dressing room is just going to constantly rise and fall, full of emotion, full of reactive behaviour. Whereas if, if you actually tell the dressing room, like I did at Dundee United, that if on average we can take 1.45 points per game, then we'll qualify for Europe and grossly overperform. And that 1.45 points per game is you actually giving away 50% of your points. So you can choose where you give those 50% of the points away from. The players are thinking, wow, we actually can get beat 50% of the games this year and still qualify for Europe. Absolutely. So in the absence of actually articulating that, we would be rising and falling every week when we were losing the 50% of those games. Now, thankfully for me, it's a strong story to tell because we did finish in Europa qualification for that season. For me, it was a way of really commanding that narrative and controlling the emotions each week. And I think the second part of that is actually being surrounded by really good people that have your back, that don't fear conflict, like what you were talking about, Clark. So Lencioni again, that can actually say, look, team selection probably wasn't great there. The session that we did last week or the logistics. So you get that 10th man feedback. And usually you'll have actually reflected yourself and you say, 
I appreciate your honesty in telling me that, but I already thought that myself. And see, see, when footballers, and there is another point I'd like to make before I actually say about footballers, they are one of the one percent that have actually made it. The figures are staggering about the lack of academy players that make it in football. So these guys are one of the one percent. So there is a robustness, there is a technical quality, there is a tactical capability. They actually have that within them, and it's our job to bring it out. I think footballers. What keeps the habitat and the environment stable is when there's an opportunity for you to take responsibility without diminishing your credibility or alienating yourself to actually really say, guys, see today there's things that we could have done better as well. In the dressing rooms that I've been part of, that is really powerful. And it is an invitation, again, linked to Legione, to actually hold the players even more accountable and to drive them even more towards results. Because once they know that it's a reasonably level playing field and you'll also protect them externally in front of the media, that is a big invitation in sport for footballers to have that psychological safety, to take risks and to really go on a journey. Very good. Very good. When you look at the social media and the immediacy of the fans, it's probably the hardest environment to create psychological safety i can see now as you're talking i'm really seeing that initial like what we discussed it shows me it's the importance of listening and working out that strategy by taking in everything that everyone said and then you develop the tactics for the specific games then it's about the man management and then it's about how do you maintain that state and it's about maintaining your state and maintaining the state of your players there's a question I right back when we started Thomas you you talked about in football you've got to drop players and Tony you've talked about you've got to slant the narrative so that whoever you're dealing with feels whatever they need in terms of autonomy competence and relatedness that they need to feel that it's meeting their needs so if you've got to drop a player and I'm thinking for example I remember reading about Messi and his de development and how the jealousies that created with Eto and, and other players like this. When you set up tactics or, or a way that a team is going to play, you're going to make certain players, you're going to emphasize certain traits and certain players and others that you might want to be involved. Like I, th I think Guardiola tried to fit Eto in and he let him stay another season when actually he didn't really fit into the plans psychologically or tactically. So how do you deal with that? How do you deal with the jealousy of, like you said, the amount, the players that make it are the ones that they've already, every human of all the sperm, that we're the ones that lasted out of millions. So how do you, these highly competitive players, how do you create that harmony with your tactics as in you decide a tactic but then you've got to harmonize the players around that just something thomas just said though that that the five dysfunctions of a team that uh, patrick lencioni talks about and I, I've, I've watched lencioni for years because i love that idea conflict is not something to hide from you have to have those conversations and it, it's the same now i've realized since i've shifted across to working with individuals and it's exactly the same people won't have those conversations with themselves they delude themselves and you look at them and, and you think, am I seeing something differently? You're in there. You're the person that's running the show in there. And yet you still can't see the thing that's obvious to everybody out here. I recall working at an organization when I first came across to Norfolk. The very first production meeting that I walked into, and I was there just in observing at first. But we, we've laughed about it since, so I don't mind telling this story. But the production director came in. There were about 15 managers all stood around in this room. And I was there 
observing because I was going to be taken over from the next ship. And he just ripped them all a new one. He just laid into them and then walked out. And I stood looking at these guys. And I said, all that stuff that he's just said, were there any reasons for any of it? Was, was there anything, any feedback? And they said, oh, yeah. And they spent the next 15 minutes explaining all the reasons for why he said. I said, why didn't you tell him? He said, oh, no, we can't do that. And so my first conversation was with the director. These guys have got a lot to say. And I said, when you go into your next meeting, you need to expect a completely different conversation because all of my work over the next couple of days was with these guys. If you saw that this was an issue, that machine was down or that these persons, these people didn't turn up on time or whatever, you need to tell him. Not that they're excuses, but this is what we're working with. These are resources we have available and you need to give us this to get that done. And over the course of about a week, he stopped coming. <laughs> he stuck because they, they had it. They already knew it. They didn't need to hear our rubbish stick, but they knew. But he just wasn't giving them the tools to fix it. And those are the conversations, I think, that, that Thomas um, was taught. I, I hope that's what you were saying anyway, that they're the conversations that need to happen. Yeah, I, I absolutely was, because if, if you think about the dressing room as the habitat or the production floor as a habitat, I think us as leaders are responsible for creating the climate. And I, I think when there's, when there's clarity around that, then it's about are, are they equipped are they resourced? Is there the appropriate forums? To Rob's point, is it's a really good example, the messy one, because while someone like like an Eto, who I think was still actually in his prime at that point in time, there would be some possible resistance about mantle and status. Then you had Ronaldinho, who essentially martyred himself at Barcelona for the emergence of, of Messi to come through. So that, that that's an even better example. And I think sometimes as a head coach, you, you can look at all the disposable opportunities to, to try and, and hurt the team. Actually speaking to players one-to-one, -one, actually, so Eto is an example who, who's known to be quite difficult, who's known to want to be the talisman. I think sometimes having those authentic conversations, so maybe actually some video, some data, is there any historical evidence that, that you can actually marry this together? There's a lot of travelling in football, so is there a consideration to put those two players into a room together? Could you create unit meetings where the attackers go with a, a specific coach, and you purposely craft some video content where Etu starts to see advantages in Messi. So you're telling me that we're going to promote this guy because he's going to supply me with 15 goals. Wow. So if I make those types of runs or make those types of sacrifices elsewhere, that we can be better to ultimately get better contracts, to win more trophies. It's not always possible, as we know, because these guys at the top level carry huge egos and it's a very kind of finite balance of trying to harmonise it all. But I do still think that there's, there's multiple opportunities and multiple leadership resources that, that we can utilise to best harmonise the team. But we also have the power of selection and sometimes the emergence of a messy might mean that we're prepared to sacrifice a Samueletto as well. And that has to be collectively, you know, diagnosed, conversated over, agreed upon, because that actually has really wider ramifications. But wouldn't it be a, a great conversation to have whether or not you're going to try and pacify a Samuel Eto or you're going to actually promote quickly a, a Leo Messi? If I've ever actually got that decision to make in my career, then I'm I'm sure I've cracked it. Coming, Thomas. It's, it's coming, mate. It's coming. <laughs> Rob, just touching on, I think, the, the idea... If you've got a squad of 30 players and you can only pick 11, you're leaving, some of them just feel underutilised, let's say. 
and that's going to impact them different ways. I wrote an article yesterday, it's fresh in mind. But if you are, and people make the mistake of thinking that all elite football hewn from the same cloth, they're, they're just like us, they're all different, they're all different. They just worked hard, talented enough and worked hard enough and got the opportunities to get where they are. So you've got the real high achiever, the driven high performer. When it comes to everybody, you're not in the team this week. Now that person's going to react differently to somebody who's the quintessential team player. I'm in it for everybody else. I'm still a great player. I'm still committed, but I'm playing for everybody else. I'm not in it for me. So it's two different sort of personas, if you like. Now, the first guy, his typical reaction will be, that's a challenge. I'm going to show you. I'm going to get fitter. I'm going to work harder on my game. I'm going to prove myself outwardly that you've made a mistake that I'm worthy of selection. Now, underpinning that, they might also show a little bit more support to the rest of the team. I'm going to show them that I'm the guy that they think I am. I'm Superman. So there's all of that external stuff going on that we know, we can feel it, we can see it, we can taste it as a coach. But what else is going on for this guy? That's the bit that we really need to understand because we need to avoid the repressed side of the impact being played out in the wrong room with the wrong people with the people that can be influenced negatively we don't want to create a toxic culture because we don't understand what the ramifications of leaving people out are we have to get on top of it this guy may well be struggling with a deep sense of rejection and we need to know that it would help to know that and if you're the other type if you're the quintessential team guy they may be dealing with a repressed sense of feeling undervalued or invisible I'm always showing this for everybody else. I'm actually building resentment inside. And I hate this. I'm not going to say it because I'm a team player. I'm going to say all the right things. I'm going to do all the right stuff. If we can get, and, and it's almost like the next level where, where the game can go, where management in general can go. There's a bit of lip service paid to this sort of stuff. But when we can understand people to that degree, they know we've got their back. We've actually helped them know themselves because lots of people don't know that's what's going on. They feel it. They feel resentful. They feel bad. They feel malicious, whatever it might be. They've got to get control of that. Otherwise, it's going to become toxic or unhealthy for them and for other people. So if we can get, we can harness that understanding. Oh, wow. Unbelievable. But how we can help people grow and knowing that of ourselves, that, it, going back to Clark, what you were saying earlier, shine the light on ourselves first and become that, then we can we start to move in a completely different circle, I think. That's, that's interesting, actually, Tony, because there's, there's another thing that, that I brought with me from manufacturing, that manufacturing has always championed this idea of, of eliminating waste organisation, yes. whether that's wasted movement, wasted material and all that sort of stuff. But the, the, the hardest waste to see is the one under talent and it, it, it really talks a lot about how you develop your people, even when they seem to be a lost cause. I noticed recently, Aston Villa have had a what some pundits have called a drop in form recently, which I find hilarious. We're still sitting in, in fourth. But I talk to all my family. My family is still in Birmingham. My, my son lives here. We watch the games every week, rain or shine. And recently, the game against Man United recently was a, an absolute nightmare. We have conversations because he'll play somebody like for instance, earlier on in the season, he was playing Bailey and Bailey wasn't playing particularly well. Recently, he's been playing players like Zaniolo and Diaby have been coming on. Tielemans was doing terribly. And right now, there's young Jacob Ramsey who's come back from injury and he's not playing well. 
particularly well at all. He seems to be fluffing a lot of his shots. And so you get a lot of these fans saying, what's he doing on there? He's supposed to be the best manager ever. I said to my son, but this is the perfect time to do this. They're sitting in third, fourth now. We can afford to drop a few points if it brings some of these players up and is developing the confidence of Bailey, who we thought he was going to be gone last season. And that now you can't leave him out of the team. The, the guy is, is, is dangerous every time he gets near a ball. When you give some of these guys an opportunity, even when the player knows, I'm rubbish at the moment, I'm doing terribly. Clearly, the boss sees something that even I don't see. And that's where self-belief starts to get instilled into a player. And I, I think so. it's the other side of what you were saying, isn't it? Sometimes you have to put people in, even if they don't feel they should be in, because that's where you start to bring out the potential in people. One time again, I've worked with people that really didn't feel they had it in them to be managers. I, I, I see this a lot with female managers. They, they struggle in meetings. The guys bang the table. They get loud. They talk over them. And they say, how can I compete with this? And the answer is not to be men. Don't be a man. Blokes are scared of a strong woman, so be strong. And, and, you, and you talk about the strengths that they have. But it's putting them into situations that they don't think they're able to deal with and letting them see that they actually can, which is exactly the same as what you've just said. It's just the other side of the same coin, isn't it? Developing those people, even when they don't know they're able to be developed. Absolutely. There's been some great points made. It might be helpful just to go around what everyone felt or what everyone was thinking or anything that anyone's going to take away from this conversation. For me, it's been fascinating to see insider fast-paced work and it's validating because when I first came from relationships to teams basically I had a five-step model that was very similar to Lencioni's it's been mentioned in Lencioni's so that's validating to know because I think where we unify in my experience of relationships is that relationships break at the point of conflict they don't end at the point of conflict but they just get worse and then we blame the other person but it's really the disconnection between people that creates the behavior that we that later ends the relationship in the end it's all about people i've taken a huge amount there's a lot that i'm still trying to take in from what you've both shared and clark it's been great that you've been able to relate your experiences in manufacturing in the same way i'm really seeing that it's really about clarity and i can see tony you and i have talked about the visibility and it's so key being able to make visible what's invisible so that we have that understanding and then it's been able to put all those pieces and it's really about listening and it's about communication it's about listening and expressing your message the root word of communication is to make common and it's like getting all the lego bricks there and we can put together the strategy when we know all the different parts so what you've shown me is how important it is to understand all the different stakeholders and all the different moving parts. And then really it's about then from that strat so um, from that strategy, it's the man management. And what really brought to me is the ability to maintain your state and how difficult it is to be a leader and how I think everyone who takes up a leadership position has to grow personally in order to cope with the pressure because you're taking on the challenge that you're not ready for so thank you all but that's what i've taken tony if you want to share what you're thinking yeah i'll just pick up on your last comment there robin manufacturing is a great example of an environment where and, and football as well for that matter where high performers are thrust into management roles before they're ready because it's not something that you can do a management course and suddenly you're a manager you read a book you read Lencioni's Five Dysfunctions book, which is it's a fantastic model. Applying it is where the art is. 
you can be a, I've got some tools in the garage, but I couldn't build you a really nice table. You know what I mean? It's the tools are, are great to have, but you can only get to where we want to go. It's a con- continuous improvement journey. You can only get there through immersing yourself in it and being open to experience and open to feedback because without it, you're that person that will go and stand in front of a group of people and tell them who you are and what you want and start banging your head against the wall for the next 20 years. It's about immersing yourself. Leadership of teams is immersing yourself in personal growth. And when you know yourself, you can grow You can grow the opportunities that your team can make. You can grow your people. And if you're going in blindly, it's just sometimes you get lucky, sometimes most of the time not. Thomas? Yeah, I think the first thing I'd like to say is it's great to be in a, a room with people who are of real expertise. How you guys communicate, the, the space that you create for brilliant conversations, but, but also how quickly you're actually able to distill and succinctly replay back what's been said. It's a, it's a long time since I've sat in this kind of environment around people who are essentially providing quality consultancy services and can very quickly actually pick apart what someone is saying, succinctly replay it back, and then also like challenge or give something to, to think about. So I just want to firstly say thank you for that. It's been quite inspiring for me to be part of this conversation. And I think the main thing for me, and just to keep the, the second part short, is that leadership comes with a lot of responsibility for, for your people. And that, that that for me is probably the, the thing I'm taking away and it's it's something that I innately feel as well. And I remember saying to Tony recently that I've seen this statement around, I hope you're winning the battle that you tell nobody about. And I think if we actually like pause for five seconds, there, there will undoubtedly be something that we are all fighting, whether it be as males or just as people, that we tell absolutely nobody about. And if that's the highest level of responsibility that leadership comes with where a player or an employee can come and just tell you that one thing or tell a member of your staff or feel the safety to just be authentically themselves. That's what I think I'm striving for. And it's why I'm always happy to to get involved in these types of discussions because I want to reflect, I want to be my own 10th man and I want to be surrounded by people that think like a 10th man so that we can provide better service and that better climate as leaders. So thank you very much for the invite, guys. I appreciate it. Thank you. Clark? When I got to the office this morning, I was just talking about football. Why I love talking about football, especially now that we're Aston Villa's not dirty word. But I've, I've taken my son to the football since he was a little boy. And I remember going to the first game when Villa were in the third division in 1973. It was We were rubbish and it was raining. And for some reason, the, the magic of the situation got me into football for the rest of my life. And it's a working class game. Always has been, always will be. In spite of all the Arsenal's and Chelsea's with their massive stadiums, it's a working class game. And having worked in manufacturing, that's a working class job. And stuff on LinkedIn about leadership. And I look at some of these things that people say, and I think, I don't know if you would know leadership if it, if it fell on you. If you got put amongst a group of people, some of them from foreign countries, some of them that don't speak English, some of them that never got to school. Some of them who were brought up in a, in a single council house on an estate somewhere in Birmingham or Manchester or wherever. How would you lead these people? Some of the things that get said about leadership drive me around, around the twist. And yet, football is a bit of a blokey, or it's got the idea of a bit of a blokey atmosphere. It's not at all, isn't it, to Thomas and Tony today. Both, I consider you to be very enlightened individuals. And it amazes me, because the one thing that's not been mentioned in all the conversations is humility. 
And both of you are extremely humble men. Uh, and it, it really does, it inspires me that, that for all the shellacking that guys get in the modern working environment and for all the stuff that's spouted about leadership by people that, like I say, wouldn't know it if it ran them over, there are people out there on the front line working with ordinary people doing stuff that helps those people, leading them to to live what I hope are better lives, whether that be in, in football or in, in manufacturing. And that's to me is where it's at the cutting edge and the front line of, of whatever it is you're doing. No, and, it, and for, I, I would like to just thank all of you for inviting me. It's been great to listen to you. And I actually, you've cheered me up because it's not as bad as everybody would lead me to believe. Thanks, everyone. Just on that point of humility, it's, I remember listening to a, a book on Guardiola and, and they talk about how humble he is and how much humility he has. To Clark's point, when you talk about success and how hard it is in football, and both of you have managed in football, playing in football is difficult, managing in football is, there can only be one manager. The growth of a leader is about humility, a lot of it. All that we've talked about, it knocks out anything that isn't true. Thank you, everyone, for being part of this and hope to pick up again and have another conversation. Thank you for listening. Please like, share, subscribe and leave a review so we can spread more flow and unify teams. If you're on LinkedIn, please connect with me, Rob McPhillips.